This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We are going to talk about the future of uh, universities and our guests today are uh, Jerry Wind, uh, Professor of Marketing at Wharton, uh, and Ben Nelson, founder of Minerva. Uh, Jerry and Ben, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton Podcasts. Thank you for having us. So, Jerry, uh, to begin with uh, a question for you, you've been running the Reimagine Education uh, Conference and program uh, through the SEI Center for four years now. Uh, where is the future of uh, education going? Well, being here with Ben, it's, it's actually easy to answer. The future is now. Uh, it has been here for, for a while. And uh, primarily what Ben has done with Minerva, he kind of recreated the University of the Future, uh, which is operational and has some amazing you know, kind of track record already. And it's kind of the, 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 the few years they've been operating. Um, so, Ben, it's great to have you with us, and um, why don't you uh, actually uh, describe briefly uh, for Mukul's benefit and the readers of Knowledge at Wharton, uh, the Minerva concept, and then uh, once they understand this, let's go into the recent findings of the CLA report that, that you have, and we'll talk about the implication of this. Sure. So Minerva uh, is, we refer to it, uh, built as an intentional university. Everything about the design of the institution, everything about what we teach, how we teach, where we teach it, is based on what we know in, through empirical evidence is effective. Um, and so if you start with what it is that we teach, uh, we're really very classical in our approach, even though we're very modern or progressive in the way that we teach it. So uh, as an example, if you think about what the purpose of a liberal arts education is or what the great American universities purport to teach, they'll say, we teach you how to think critically, we teach you how to problem solve, we teach you how to uh, think about uh, uh, the way the world works, to be global, we teach you how to communicate effectively. And then when you actually look at how that's done uh, or how universities attempt to do it, they basically teach you academic subject matter and they hope that you pick up all the other stuff by accident. Uh, but that's like saying, you know, I'm going to teach you how to dance, but let's start with cooking, right? <laughs> um, and, and that seems a little bit odd. Right? And so, yeah, and so <laughs> we decided to actually have a curriculum that teaches these things, that actually breaks down critical thinking, creative thinking, effective interactions and effective communications into component parts and making sure that we don't teach them, don't just teach them conceptually and don't just teach them in a context, but actually explain the concept and then have our students apply them actively from context to context to context. So can you give an example of how you do that? Sure. So think about what critical thinking is, right? So, you know, one aspect of critical thinking, for example, is evaluating claims. Uh, somebody, you know, makes a claim, and so you can say, hey, does this claim make sense or does it not make sense? But there are various ways of evaluating claims. Sometimes you use logic. Sometimes you use reasoning, which is different than logic. Sometimes you do statistical analysis, which is different than the other two. Sometimes you just think of a counterexample, right? So there are different components of evaluating claims. Now there are different kinds of critical thinking. So, for example, making a decision trade-off. Should I go down path A or path B? 
Well, a technique for making a decision trade-off is perhaps uh, thinking through what's the cost-benefit analysis. That's a technique related to cost-benefit analyses, which is a kind of critical thinking, right? Um, a thing of decision trade-offs. And so the, the key is if you say, I'm going to teach you critical thinking, and you just try to teach it as a thing, you will never succeed. But if you go through systemically and, through, and do the component parts, that's important. So that's the first aspect. The second aspect is that if you teach a person a, uh, a, an idea, let's say evaluation of claims, let's say you, you teach them that in the context of medicine, right? You're, you're reading a medical article, a scientific article, and somebody makes a claim and you evaluate it. Right? The problem is, is that the mind gets trained in a particular context. And so when somebody will make a claim, let's say on an investment opportunity, right, or a political claim, the mind doesn't really transfer those skills from one field to another. And this is really one of the fundamental problems of transferable education. And so the way that you actually teach that is provide uh, exercise and applications in multiple fields, biology, uh, biological context, and legal context, and economic context, etc. So then, when somebody is making a claim in a social uh, uh, context, you are your mind is trained to be uh, in evaluative mode when they make that claim. And so that's an example of of what it is that we teach. How we teach is also radically different. Um, science of learning shows that the dissemination of information, lecture and test-based methodology simply doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Six months after the end of a traditional lecture and test-based class, 90% of the material you were supposed to have learned is gone from your mind. Whereas in an active learning environment where you actually struggle through information, two years after the end of a class, you retain 70%. Right? So you have the, uh, uh, the concept of retention going from 10% to 70%, which is remarkable. It's actually a bigger mm -hmm. impact uh, than penicillin has versus a sugar pill. It's, mm -hmm. it's, that, it's that fundamental. And we have developed a technique called fully active learning, which takes active learning and makes it even more intensive. And so all of our classes, despite the fact that they're very small seminars, 15 to 19 students uh, at a time, they're all done via live video online where there's a camera pointed at every student's face. What The students are actively engaged with the material. It's not the professor lecturing. Professors are not allowed to talk for more than four minutes at a time. And the students get feedback on how it is that they apply what they do. And then lastly is where we teach. And, and that is that we've created a university that actually takes advantage of the best the world has to offer. Um, so being a Penn graduate myself, I always actually uh, gravitated towards the idea of the urban campus. You know, when we think about, mm -hmm. and even before I was here, very much a, a integrated into the city. And I thought that that was actually an advantage. Now the campus is a bit more of a fortress uh, and tries to kind of keep, uh, uh, keep the city out. And I think that's a bad thing. And so what our students do is they live in the heart of cities and residence halls together, have a very strong community, and they spend their first year in the heart of San Francisco, but then over the next three years, as a cohort, as a group, they will travel and live in six different countries across the next six semesters. Mm. So in their second year, they go to Seoul and Hyderabad, then they go to Berlin and Buenos Aires, then London and Taipei, and then they come back to San Francisco for a month to manifest their education and graduate.
Um, and so that re revised approach not only exposes them to various parts of the world, but it also gives them opportunities to apply what they have learned in their general education, which I described in the first year, in their majors and the concentrations, the electives they take, to the real world in different contexts, which is another form mm -hmm. of transfer. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's, it's terrific. And um, uh, so while the concept is appealing, uh, the question always, does it really work? And um, Ben just told me before we started this uh, interview about the results of the CLA test. So would you describe to Mukul and the audience the CLA test, the results? Sure. And then let's talk about the implication of this. Sure. So the Collegiate Learning Assessment is uh, an assessment provided by a, a third-party nonprofit that has been testing uh, and assessing students' progress on critical thinking, problem-solving, scientific reasoning, and effective communication skills for many, many years. It's been administered to hundreds of thousands of students across hundreds of universities. And what's great about it is that it's administered to students at the beginning of their first year and at the end of their fourth year. And so you can actually measure progress of students as they've gone through the system. And so we also decided to provide it to our students to kind of have a third-party measure of how effective it is that we are uh, when, when we do it. And so we provided them the first-year test just before they started class, in the, the first class in the first, uh, uh, at the very beginning of, of, of the year. But rather than waiting four years, we gave our students the fourth-year test at the end of their first year, so only eight months later. And the results, which we just received a few months ago, actually shocked us. And they shocked the CLA as far as we understand as well, because not only did our students after eight months have the highest composite score in the country compared to any other university that was assessing their students, but the delta improvement that our students accomplished in eight months along these measures was higher than what the CLA has seen any university accomplish over four years. Mm. What, what, what drew those, those results, man? Well, uh, the the uh, the jaded answer would would be, or, or I think the silly answer would be to say, oh, you know, we're brilliant and we're great, and look at <laughs> look at how 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 amazing uh, what we do are. I think the the fact of the matter is uh, that we've got a lot of room to grow and improve, and these results, in many ways, are much more damning of the existing system than they are generating praise for our brilliance. You know, we have taken publicly available, scientifically published uh, data on how the mind works, right? We've, we've broken down the things that every university says they teach or that they want to teach and merely spent time putting together a curriculum that does that. And we've offered it to students, right? I mean, we've just done what uh, anybody who would rationally approach trying to create a solution to a problem do. And with that attempt, we've produced results that are incomparable. They're just off the charts compared to what everybody else is doing. And so I would bet you that if you had 100 institutions that, or 100 groups of people that were to do the same thing we would have done from scratch, we would probably be better than some of them, maybe most of them, but not all of them, you know? And there would be some that on their first try would be even better than we are. So th this really talks about, you know, Mukul, it's a great question, because it really addressed the issue, one is the value of idealized design. Uh, it really says, 
as opposed to trying to fix the current educational system by adding another course here, trying to create perhaps a cross-disciplinary course. Let's re-examine the whole purpose of education, and if we were to design it from scratch, how would we do it? And that's what Minerva did. So I thought Ben did a spectacular job in Minerva. I think he's very modest uh, in kind of evaluating the accomplishment of Minerva, because if you look conceptually at what they've done, uh, it's really an amazing new curriculum. It's totally different. Uh, I would say they didn't go far enough, which is basically they're still within an academic context, and probably if they will relax the academic context, which has to be, you know, semesters and the like, they may get even better results. But even within this academic con uh, context and constraint, what they've done is amazing. And all the items uh, been described, which is the, the curriculum itself, the concept, the, the way it's developed for the benefit of the learner, not the benefit of the faculty who teaches the course, uh, the way, how they do it, and the were, I think they're all kind of amazing. But in the, the key implications are one, in addition to, you know, kind of, if you had a choice and you want to go to university now, where would you go? And I had actually this discussion with my granddaughter. Uh, she's uh, 14 and a half, just started high school, and started talking about what she wants to do. I told her, you have two options. You want really great education, go to Minerva. You want a network, go to one of the, the top five <laughs> schools, you know, Penn, Harvard, uh, Princeton, Yale, and uh, MIT. Uh, but if you really want the best education, Minerva offers it, and probably in, in different network than the traditional one, because it's a network of people who are willing to do it. And their admissions are amazing. Uh, the numbers that I understand is what you had like twenty thousand applications for two hundred positions. Yeah, yeah. So la last last year, we for our third class ever, we received twenty thousand four hundred applicants. So that's more applicants than MIT or Dartmouth got. Uh, and uh, and to your point, the network that you get in a Wharton or, or Harvard or Yale or what have you uh, is a certain kind of network. Overwhelmingly American, 90%, 80-90% from, from the United States, uh, usually from particular socioeconomic uh, backgrounds, even mm -hmm. though there's some diversity, but it's kind of heavily weighted. Um, and the Minerva network is radically different. 80% of our students are not from the United States. They come from 61 different countries. We receive these 20,000 applications from 179 different countries. Wow. Uh, and so the uh, and the experience and network you build as you travel and live and are resident in all of these seven countries is unparalleled. So if you really want to go deep on uh, a network of you know the Northeast or, or California, if you want to go to Stanford or what have you, that's one thing. But if you want a really like global, global footprint, that's really what we provide there. But let's talk for a few minutes, and we'll go up to your reaction to this too in terms of the implications. Because to me, the implications are clear. The current educational system does not work. Uh, implication two is that uh, they have to realize that they are being disrupted. That Minerva is really the disruptor in this industry. So at this stage, in small scale, but if other universities will start adopting it, it can be in, in large scale. And um, Ben and I have been talking about trying to apply this at IDC, mm -hmm. the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya. We're talking about basically trying to develop an experiment there using the Minerva context. So they're really the disruptors here. And the signal should be to all the legacy universities, our model does not work. Stop trying to fix by adding another Band-Aid, but try basically to try to rethink the educational system. And here you have basically a wonderful blueprint, you know, it, that, that works, that we know it works. Now, you want to be creative? 
come up and improve on this. Exactly. But at least start its foundation, the new blueprint that Minerva has done, as opposed to just uh, trying to fix the current system that really does not work. And, and you mentioned, uh, Jerry, before, the academic constraints that we have. We're still semester-based, we're accredited, we're doing seat hours. That's for a reason. In fact, we just wrote a, a book called Building the Intentional University, uh, which is a blueprint for how other universities can create their own Minervas or, or, or reform in that sense. But to understand that we are a residential university that grants undergraduate degrees with 120 credit hours, right, with majors and minors and electives and a general education curriculum, we are plug and play for, for universities. And so we offer a, a salvation potential from disruption. And what I am worried about and the thing that makes me concerned is that the other kind of disruptive force that can attack universities is is actually disruptive and destructive, right? In the sense that if you look at the boot camps that are out there, mm -hmm. in six months, you get a high school degree, you go to a boot camp, and then you get a six-figure job being a software programmer. And guaranteed. Right? And yeah, guaranteed. Guaranteed position. Guaranteed position. And if that doesn't work, then you can go to college. But if, if it's costing me $25,000 for six months to get a six-figure job you know, uh, out of high school, why would I pay $250,000 for an education that probably won't get me that same job? Right? So if you think about the role of the university is to get you that first job, the disruption is myriad, and it's very destructive. What we're doing is we've put together an educational experience that enables university graduates to be better prepared, not worse prepared than versus the, that six-month boot camp, because they're able to do higher-level problem-solving. They're going to be the architects as opposed to the programmers, right? They're going to be the ones that, in a world of Watson and artificial intelligence and, and outsourcing, are going to be much more future-proof. And that is the promise of a liberal arts education, but unfortunately, it's not what it has delivered. And to bring to close the circle on kind of where we started, actually, in the last conference of Reimagine Education, one of the most popular sessions was, is traditional college degree dead? Mm -hmm. And uh, the data are there. What Ben was talking about is really increasing number of people view employability as being critical as a university degree, traditional degree, does not really guarantee employability in any way. Uh, and uh, primarily the proliferation of new non-degree programs that guarantee you a position. So I think that uh, this is really uh, what, what Ben is suggesting here with creating this platform that universities can adapt is really a way for the legacy universities to try to address the, the potential disruption here. And interesting is the subtitle of the book that uh, Ben suggested, which is uh, the subtitle for Building the Tetral University is Minerva and the Future of Higher Education. I would add to this another colon, is now. <laughs> because if you will apply it, if apply the Minerva approach, start reimagining the university, not by fixing it through Band-Aids, you can really kind of address the coming disruption now. Ineffectively. Great. I have a couple of quick questions for both of you, actually, if you don't mind. Uh, uh, we were talking about disruption of the education model, and I would say about three or four years ago, uh, a big potential disruptor was the so-called MOOC, or the Massive Open Online Course. And a number of uh, platforms came up, you know, Coursera, Udacity, uh, edX, etc., uh, that seemed 
that it could be disruptive. Uh, that doesn't seem to have happened. Uh, and, and I was wondering if I could get from each of you uh, your assessment of what really happened with that so-called disruption and why did it fail? Well, um, I would actually say that, that uh, it, the jury is still somewhat out. And let me, let me give you an example of what, uh, of what I think is happening uh, on the surface. It's happening now starting at Penn, uh, but it actually started a couple of years ago at MIT. MIT had a, a master's uh, program in supply chain logistics. It cost $60,000, two-semester program. And they realized that the first semester were professors standing up in front of a class reading books out loud to them. What I used to do for my six-year-old until she's learned how to read and she's had me stop reading to her. Um, and so they said, huh, this is odd. Why don't we just, as an experiment, take this first semester, put it up all on MOOCs, Rather than charging $30,000 for it, we'll give it away for free. If you want to get credit for it, pay us $250, bucks. we will give you an exam. And then, if you score well on the exam, you can come to campus, do a one-semester supplement, pay us $30,000, and get a master's degree. So rather than $60,000, they said $31,000. And guess what? It's worked fabulously. There are four mini-masters offering, four of these master's programs happening now instead of one, two years later, and soon there will be 10 Right Now, this takes the cost of higher education for a master's degree and cuts it by half. Now imagine, what if the Ivy League looked at all of, or any university, would look at the number of courses that they give academic credit for, which are effectively professors standing up and reading a book out loud to students. It is the majority of the credits issued by universities. People say, oh, you know, 80% of our class have fewer than 20 students. That is true. But 40% of your credits are issued in those classes, or 30% of your credits, because the big classes issue a lot of credits. And so what, ha what happens if all of a sudden university says, huh, of the $250,000 that we're used to collecting, but this university was reliant on, Rather than that, we can only collect 100000 because that 150000 is effectively given away for free. Ooh. Now, so far, no university has an incentive to rock the boat too much on this. But then again, MIT didn't have much of an incentive to cut their master's revenue by half. And so all it takes for disruption is a mover that says, huh, why don't we do this? And if the university doesn't have a response, if it doesn't have something different, instead, they can be disrupted. And so just because the disruption has not happened immediately doesn't mean that it won't happen. doesn't mean that it will. But it takes more, and that's just an example. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. It's not a rethinking of education. It's just a, a, a rational understanding of a, a replacement good. But my reaction to this is uh, kind of in two ways. One is um, a little concern, and the concern is that, especially for the leading universities, uh, that's uh, an excuse not to innovate. Uh, so they're saying, look how innovative we are. We have MOOCs, or you know, we offer Coursera, and basically the rest of the education stays exactly the same way it was before. Uh, and uh, that's dangerous because basically, so they do, okay, innovation, check. Let's continue <laughs> with doing what we're doing now. 
the positive side they reacted to this is coming from some of the findings that suggest that less than 5% of the people who start ever finish any type of the courses on Coursera or EDX. And, but there are some encouraging signs that if you edge to the traditional kind of uh, Coursera course or EDX uh, interaction, if you provide some more gamification principles in terms of getting involved, you can increase the, uh, the numbers uh, significantly, which suggests to me that will be really useful if we looked at this not as, as we know them today, the Coursera and EDX as, you know, kind of uh, the answer, but rather they're beginning. They're beginning, and how do we experiment with them, and how do we make them more effective, and how then how do we integrate them in a classroom? How do we use them in terms of flipped classroom? Yeah. Now, the advantage of this, when MIT, Stanford, uh, Wharton, other places start putting all these courses online, that uh, the role of the faculty become easier as a curator. And I think this is the fundamental change that we have to see in education to try to achieve the type of uh, impact that uh, Ben has been able to do with Minerva is the faculty will stop looking at themselves. I have to be the star performer mm -hmm. in the classroom, but rather think of themselves as a curator of all the available information. Because the typical faculty will know what out of uh, 26 topics in a class may be an expert on two mm -hmm. or three. What about the others? You know, it's just a chapter ahead of the, of the students who doesn't make any sense. But if you can use the stars in all of these areas and become the curator and create active learning as opposed to sitting back there and kind of uh, have passive learning, which, you know, the data that Ben showed is really quite kind of compelling. 10% versus 70 is not something to sneeze at. So I think that um, the jury is really out in terms of what will happen with Coursera, EDX, and all the others, and what will be the role. But it's all depend on how they will be integrated with more creative thinking and more innovation and more experimentation, as opposed to just looking at them all the available now and that's it. Let me ask one last question and start with you, Ben. Uh, you, you mentioned the fact that if you want, if students want a network, that it's the, the traditional universities are good places to, to get, get that. But I think there's one other factor apart from the network that uh, especially the Ivy League universities offer, and that is the brand. Uh, you know, it is, a, it is an unfortunate fact that people will make judgments about you all your life depending on where you went to school. And as a Penn alum, I'm sure you have benefited from that in, 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 in many ways. Uh, when you have this innovative model like Minerva, how do you establish a brand that is not just acceptable to the students, but also acceptable yeah. to employers? So it's, uh, it, it's actually an excellent uh, uh, perspective. We have a bit of a different take on it, and I have a different take because I went to Penn and I saw, I saw the difference. I believe that today, before Minerva, there have been two kinds of higher education brands. There are neutral brands and there are negative brands. I consider Penn Wharton to be a neutral brand. Oh, you went to Penn. Let me interview you. Let me actually get to see if you have, you know, what substance you have, right? You went to Brown, really? To pick on Brown, just because they're fellow <laughs> Ivy League University, right? But the vast majority of other brands in higher education 
indicates something was lacking. Now, it's not true, obviously, but that's the popular perception. And I, and I use Brown, actually, as, as an example, because certainly, you know, as a Penn alum, as a Wharton alum, you know, I was at, at Penn when we were climbing up the reputation ladder, right? And we were, you know, by the time I, I, I graduated from Penn versus when I came into Penn, you know, we could safely look down our noses at, at several <laughs> Ivy League institutions, right? And that made us feel good, right? And, uh, and, and so the, the demerit system happens very, very, very fast in higher education, where you have these biases that say, okay, at the same, I, I know you, there, are, there were better schools for you to have gone to, and therefore if you went to a war school, maybe something is wrong with you. At the same time, I have met a countless number of Harvard, Yale, even Penn graduates who were bozos, right? And so if you're in, in the, the real world, you encounter people, and even when you go to school, you say, how did you get in here? You, you always have that element. So, so that's where the neutrality of the brand comes in. Minerva was built as a positive brand. When you meet somebody at Minerva, you know that they have had brain surgery, right? You know that they have been given systematic frameworks of analysis that they can apply effectively to the rest of the world. Our challenge is to propagate that brain, to get people aware of it. The good news is that the internet is a very, very good way of disseminating information. And so if you have heard about Minerva as an employer, you immediately want to talk to the students. You immediately want to hire them. You want to interview them. They're, they're kind of like the, uh, the rare bird that you, you can spot. If you haven't heard of Minerva, type Minerva into Google. You'll see it's the most selective university in the history of the United States. You'll see it, how effective it is. You'll see who hires from it, etc. And so overcoming brand building in today's world doesn't take centuries. It doesn't even take decades. That's that's your uh, perspective because uh, as 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 an expert in marketing and branding would love to ha you to have the final word on this. <laughs> um, final word on branding word on branding is always the consumer. Yeah. It's no no <laughs> expert is the final word on, on branding. Uh, uh, three three comments on this. One is um, I think that uh, the best uh, kind of uh, carrier of the the brand and especially on the positive side, will be the alumni. So the, the value of the degree, the value of the Minerva experience really is a function of how good the alumni are. And how good the alumni are, in, in addition to this amazing uh, finding of the CLA uh, report, is the, the input. And the encouraging sign is that uh, they had this year over 20,000 applications for 200 positions. So definitely from this, they can select the right group. So I have great confidence that, you know, they'll be able to build the brain through the quality of the students and the alumni. Uh, two, I think that um, a, a lot of the employability and the kind of the demand for the Minerva students. And again, the question is, and I don't know the data, how many of them want to be basically independent? The, the general statistics uh, show that close to a third of the U.S. workforce want to be independent, don't want to work for any large company. Uh, I don't know what the Minerva statistics are. It's too it's early to too tell. Too early to tell. Too early to tell. 
but those who want to work for a corporation, I think what will help them build a brand will be the fact that uh, Minerva now moved into a platform that can actually be used also by corporate learning. Mm. And the largest market for education is really not universities, it's really corporate learning mm. all over the world. So as corporation will start using some of the platform, I think this will definitely help. So the quality of the students and alumni, the corporation start adopting the platform, and universities start adopting the platform. Because the more universities start adopting this, the more you capture a reputation effect that will have there. And we really, I really look at this in terms of what Ben was talking about in terms of the age of the internet. Look at this as a network effect. That basically, so as more universities start adopting the platform and corporation, you start seeing a really network effect here. And um, the, the final area is really... Uh, hopefully disseminating effectively the CLA results, and hopefully this will continue every year. And if basically people will start, uh, hopefully the CLA itself will start advertising and promoting their activity. And the more people realize that this is a legitimate, valid measure of the type of competencies that you are looking for in people today, and uh, they start realizing the huge advantage of Minerva Education offers in this area, I think it will basically change the balance of power and people say, wow, it's not only that I'm getting, you know, kind of a better education here, but then add to this the kind of the experience they're getting through in the new network because they're really promoting here, not the network that typically wants the big brand name, but rather the network of people who are more adventurous or basically willing to take risks, willing to go with the more innovative platform. So I think uh, I will bet on Minerva. <laughs> Well, Jerry, Ben, thank you so much for speaking with Knowledge of Horton. It's great to have uh, had this you. chance to talk to you. Thanks for having us. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.